Good morning. So good to be with you. I'm very undeserving. Thank you so very much. It's very kind of you. And thank you for those that were prone to pray during the course of these days and um, seem to be recovering from the stroke. And so I give all praise to God. I'd love for you now to take your Bibles and turn with me or turn on your devices as we make our way to John chapter 11. We've been involved in a series regarding the seven signs in the Gospel of John. I praise God for the way in which uh, Pastor John McDonald has expounded God's word of the course of these prior Sundays. John, outstanding ministry. I praise God for you, my brother. We're looking at John chapter 11, and what I would love to do is to read 1 down through verse 6. We're covering 16 verses today. It's a, it's a lengthy chapter. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, in fact, has 18 expositions on John 11 alone. It's an astounding thing. Um, we're going to cover this in just um, a few sessions together, but uh, I'd love to read from verse 1 down through verse 6, and here now you and I find the Apostle John writing these words for, for us. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Uh, now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, and this is utterly amazing, we read it again. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why? If he loves Lazarus so much. We're going to explore this together this morning as we look to our Lord in prayer. Father, there are some extraordinary insights that you provide us in these verses. And we want to be able to harness them all. And to be able to draw out what it is here and relate it to life today. Now, Father, you know the needs of the people. Those that are watching online, pour your spirit upon them even now. Those in the prior service, those in the equipped gathering, those that have gathered in this service. We're praying that in a very distinctive, unique way, you will work, work mightily for them, in them, through them. 
It's possible that there are some issues regarding health here. Meet them at the point of need. Family, children, grandchildren, spouses. In our singleness, we think of the various dynamics involved. Colleagues, people at school. Lord, the relationships are far-reaching. While you are personally involved in the individual setting, you are also involved in the global setting, the Middle East. Work mightily there. Russia, Ukraine, reveal yourself there. China and its inclinations work there. There are global complexities. There is a linear movement that leads to the return of Jesus Christ. Our eyes are open to you. We are committed to you, your word. So Father, we want this worship experience to be able to take the truth and relate it to life. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only, and praying these things still again now, in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember going through the book of Ephesians, which took an extended period of time, just under two years, on Sunday mornings. And there was a moment where I glanced to the side where the women who would very typically, on a week-by-week basis, do sign language had paused in what she would be doing. For we had some deaf-impaired individuals off to the side, and it was very important that I would be able to pace myself in such a way that she could stay with me. Sometimes I would speed up, sometimes I would slow down, But in the periphery, what I would be trying to do is to discern where she's at and what was needed to be able to continuously communicate biblical truth to the people that were positioned by her. But I noticed as I was expounding in the book of Ephesians where I had gotten to chapter 3, that for some reason she had stopped doing signage. No signs. Why? The passage that I had been expounding that day was from uh, chapter 3, verses 18 through the beginning of 19, where Paul had prayed that the Ephesians may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Afterward, because I was having to move quickly from one service to the next to speak, nonetheless, I I stopped with her and and I said, I noticed that you paused in verses 18 and 19 
when we got to the point of talking about the width and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. Why? And she took a deep breath and she simply said, it was because I was getting so overwhelmed with an understanding of the love of Christ. It's almost as if now what the Apostle John is doing is that he is pausing in a sign language. This is the seventh of the signs. But we've now reached a point where in a rather lengthy passage, he wants us to be able to take in the depth, the breadth, the height, and on and on of the way in which the love of Jesus Christ is revealed to you, revealed to me. For you see, the woman who was providing the signage was so overwhelmed by it all uh, that, as she said to me, it came rather unexpectedly. I, I just stopped what I was doing. What I want to do is to, in essence, stop, look carefully. And I want to be able to draw out for us this morning four unexpected ways by which Jesus Christ reveals his love as seen in this 11th chapter of John. And the first comes out of verse 1 down through verse 4, and we're going to put it this way, that as you and I, as we consider the unexpected ways Christ reveals his love, I want to note first of all the, what I'm going to call the vital purpose the vital purpose our Lord discloses. There is a reason here for the way in which he's about to uh, reveal his love to Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And there are reasons for the way in which he reveals his love to you and to me, unexpected ways, unanticipated circumstances, Ways in which sometimes we prefer not to have to go through what we're going through, but it's all part and parcel of God's sovereign strategy. Notice the vital purpose here as it begins to unfold. When verse 1, you and I are told this, Now, a certain man was ill. Pause there. What interests me at this point is that this word ill carries within the original language ill to the point of death. He is on a rapid decline. And so, furthermore, you and I are told with regard to this individual that he is a certain man. We're not told anything about the fact of this man having accomplished so much for God live so well for God, led others to Jesus Christ. All we know at this point is that as John begins to inch into this passage, he informs us that there's this certain man who was ill, and now finally we get to his name. It's as if to say what he wants to say in the onset is not so much the significance of this man as it is the condition of this man 
that will be at the forefront as to how this purpose for bringing glory to God is going to get unpacked. The name Lazarus comes from the same word Eleazar in the Bible, which in essence means one whom God helps. Man, is God about to help him? A certain man was ill. That word will come in various forms, again in verse 2, 3, and 4. It's there for emphasis. It is going to be the vehicle by which Jesus Christ reveals the purpose for his arriving in a setting known as Bethany. Lazarus is of Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. And then in parenthesis, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was, and there it is again for us, second time, ill. This is a rather prominent family. And so prominent, in fact, that they would use exorbitant amounts of dollars for a particular ointment that Mary would use to wipe the feet of Jesus, which will be described in the very next chapter. But what you and I have to do at this point is to get our bearings and just where is Jesus and how does this relate to where Lazarus is at? Look at the map that appears on the screen. And so where Jesus is now at is that he is in a region known as Batania. Batania is roughly about 110 miles, about uh, three to four days walking distance for a man fairly healthy to be able to get from there to here. Now, the word gets to Jesus while he's ministering here. You can read about it in the, just the prior chapter. Good things are happening. And we are told in John chapter 10 that he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Many came to him, and they said, John did no sign irony. But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Which means then, this family wants Jesus to leave a very fruitful ministry where it is safe, far away from the opponents to Jesus, and come to a setting just two miles away from Jerusalem where hostility towards Christ has escalated to the point where they want him dead. But you see, this family wants Jesus present. This is a statement of love. Look at the very next picture. It appears on the screen, and this is a view of Bethany today, outside of Jerusalem, and so now two miles away, a rather well-to-do region in the time period of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. And so somehow, someway, in verse 3, you're back to the text, the sisters sent to him. They have a feel for where he's at. And they simply say, Lord, mark this, Lord, he whom you love is ill. 
What I want you to see at this point is that it does not read, Lord, the one who loves you is ill. Astounding. Now, when you read that, you and I begin to think very seriously about this whole matter of the love of Jesus Christ. The kind of love that would cause an individual to stop offering sign language, to pause and consider the greatness of the love of Christ. For you see, what first of all informs us is that Jesus had a lot of different relationships that you and I might know very little about. But one of the common things about those that are close to Jesus who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, is that we don't necessarily think about ourselves as people who love Christ profoundly as much as we think about the fact that Jesus Christ loves us profoundly. My love for him is tainted by my sin. My love for him is finite. His love for me is infinite. His love for me is eternal. My love for me, him is temporal. His love for me is unchangeable. But due to situations and circumstances of life, humanity's love for Christ is ever-changeable. Here, the infinite, eternal, unchangeable nature of the height, depth, breadth, length of our Lord is on full display at this point, and they know it. And so what stands out here is that as they come to him, they are struck with the fact, not by presenting to him as one who loves you, and look at all he's done for you, so... Come on over here and take good care of him. That's not how they approach this. But instead, as should be the case for us, they are overwhelmed, not by our love for him, but by his love for us, and that while we're yet sinners, as Paul would write it, Christ died for us. Lord, he whom you love is ill. They don't say anything more, though they know firsthand that Jesus Christ has had an extraordinary impact in his earthly ministry of healing people. But there's hope, isn't there, that Jesus is going to do something about this. And maybe this morning, as you're now pondering the love of Christ for you or your family members, you're hoping that something is going to, Jesus is going to do something about this. Is that where you're at? Well, now, what's Jesus going to say and what's Jesus going to do as he turns to his disciples and those that have brought this message? Not exactly what you and I expected. You're up to verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, quote, This illness does not lead to death. 
It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now again, what we said was that the Greek word for ill here carries with the idea of an illness which leads to death. There is the irony of this. Now at one level, of course, this illness leads to death, but it does not end in death. Let me say it again. At one level, this illness leads to death. But if you know the whole story here of John 11, it does not end in death. Rather, it ends in resurrection. But maybe what Jesus is doing at this point is saying there's a purpose to this. There is a vital purpose as to why Lazarus is going through what he is going through at this point, and maybe there's a vital purpose as to why you're going through what you're going through at this point in, of your life. Now, from what I've been able to determine as I examine the scriptures, there are at least in the scriptures eight different reasons why people suffer physically. You never want to so shrink one's understanding of Jesus' view of, of illness or suffering into just one category. He's much more complex than that. And very frankly, suffering is also much more complex than that. What Jesus is now saying is that there's purpose to this. It's so that God can display his glory and so that God's son can be glorified through it. And that's why the miracles in the Gospel of John are referred to as signs. They, in other words, refer to something bigger or someone bigger than where we're at at that moment in the text. That's why you will find the word significant having the idea of sign embedded within that word. There is significance to this sign. Now, what's Jesus up to at this point? Well, what the Apostle John would want you and me to be able to do is we're exploring this and thinking seriously about this purpose being that of glory, is that John began the entire gospel with these words, and the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then we're going to find at the other end of this equation that after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, there will be Greeks that appear on the scene, and when they come looking for Christ, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So you pull all this together now, and what you and I have to be able to say is that when you and I are exploring, when we're pondering the various reasons why we're going through what we're going through, it might be physical. It might be you're dealing with some family matter, a daughter, a son, a parent, 
Bear in mind, there are a wide range of reasons in the complexity of suffering, but there are a wide range of reasons in the purposes of God that have got to be corralled and pulled together to fully appreciate. But one thing stands out. Whatever you and I do, and whether it be sick or ill or health, anything and everything we do is for the glory of God. And so now, even Lazarus' illness at this point, there's purpose to it. So begin to ponder, and what is the purpose for why we're going through what we're going through in our family? As you inch forward with me to this, to this second way, that secondly is we consider the unexpected ways that Christ reveals his love, and he's all about now uh, the glory of God, Note, furthermore, the strategic delay that our Lord creates. You're up to, you're up to verse 6. When you make your way to verse 6, what surprises us at this point is that we begin again with the emphasis upon Jesus' love, though the prior usage of love earlier in the text was the Greek word phileo, we get Philadelphia from it, the city of brotherly love. It's a brotherly kind of love. But now in verse, in verse 5, we're told that Jesus loved, and it's agape, it's a sacrificial kind of love. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So what kind of sacrifice is Jesus going to now take on, sacrificially demonstrating his love for such a family? When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What kind of love is that? When you're in the hospital and you see the nurse call button right to your side, you're expecting when you punch that button, somebody's going to come running, right? Hmm. Not necessarily. Jesus stays two extra days. What's the reason for this? This is a strategic delay. And the strategic delay, among other things, is this. By the time he will get there, it will be four days. In the Jewish scheme of things, four days was what was viewed as confirmation that one has truly died. If he arrives sooner, they will view it as a resuscitation rather than a resurrection when it comes to what he achieves. Fascinating. And so there's this rabbinical commentary that also says that there was a superstition during that day in which the soul hovers over the body of the deceased person for the first three days, intending to re-enter it, but as soon as it sees its, sees its appearance change, that is, as soon as decomposition sets in, then it departs because then death is viewed as irreversible. What Jesus is about to do then is to make absolutely certain we have moved beyond healings of one who is sick to a resurrection of one who is dead. He is intensifying the miraculous 
to seize the attention of both followers of Christ and those opposed of Jesus Christ. And here's the irony of all ironies, and we'll get to it in just a second. Now, the one who will demonstrate he has sovereignty over life and death will face the opposition of those who want to put him to death. Try to figure that one out. When in reality, three days later, he'll be able to be raised from the grave. If he can raise Lazarus, can he be raised himself? But we're getting ahead of the story. At this point, what he is doing then is that not only is he setting up a situation where people will be able to truly say this was not resuscitation, but rather true resurrection, but you see, there's Martha and there's Mary, and they're in the waiting room. Where's Jesus? I thought he loves us. The writer Henry Nowen wrote a book, Sabbatical Jennies, and he tells the story of some friends who were trapeze artists, and they were with the circus, and their lives had an impact on him. They were known as the Flying Rudellas. You might have heard of them. And they told Nowen that there's a special relationship I'm reading now between the flyer and the catcher on the trapeze. The flyer's the one that lets go, the catcher's the one that catches. The relationship is important, especially to the flyer. For you see, when the flyer is swinging high above the crowd on the trapeze, the moment comes when he's got to let go. He arcs out into the air. And his job is to remain as still as possible and get this, to wait. To wait for the strong hands of the catcher to pluck him from the air. The trapeze artist told Nowen, quote, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer must wait in midair, wait in absolute trust, wait. The catcher will catch him. You ever feel like Martha and Mary and you're suspended in midair and you're waiting? Is God going to catch me? Or is this all going to fall apart? And what about that loved one? Do I just follow that person from place to place to place, trying to catch them? Or can I put my faith and trust in the catcher, who is greater than I? As we consider the unexpected ways Christ reveals his love, you know, first of all, the vital purpose our Lord discloses out of one through four, where four times the word ill was used, ill meaning ill to the point of, of death. But then you combine that in the unexpected ways in which Christ reveals his love, the flip side, the strategic delay our Lord creates. And the delay is part of the design because, let me say this, by delaying two more days, he is not so much 
following Martha and Mary's calendar for Lazarus. As he is following God the Father's calendar for the second member of the Trinity, who is going to arrive in Jerusalem at just the right time to be put on a cross to die for sins. And it would take the raising of Lazarus, not the resuscitation of Lazarus, to set in motion such opposition toward Christ that now you've got a mechanism by which Jesus Christ will then, in the fullness of time, in a timely way, enter in Passover when sacrificial lambs are being offered and then die in the place for our sins. It's perfect timing on God's schedule, but not necessarily on Martha and Mary's schedule. What's your schedule? And are you following God's schedule? Or are you trying to dictate to God that he should follow your schedule? Hmm. These are the questions that, that we have to grapple with, and I'm applying them to self as we talk. So you're pulling together these strands, the vital purpose our Lord discloses. It's all about God's glory in one through four. In the midst of four consecutive statements about illness, and you combine it with the strategic delay our Lord creates, and you say to yourself, how does love connect with delays? I thought there should be a sense of urgency when you're loved and you're hurting for someone to come and step in. But now it leads us then to this, this third way we're out of verses 7 down to verse 10 as you and I consider the unexpected ways Christ reveals his love. Note thirdly here the threatening conditions our Lord faces. In verse 7, after he said this, after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. You can just see the look on their faces. Where in John chapter 10, after Jesus had declared, I and the Father are one, uh, the hostile opponents of Christ wanted to pick up stones and kill him. Now Jesus and the disciples are, are, are going to have to consider threatening conditions in Judea. Why can't we stay in Galilee where we are experiencing fruitful ministry? That's not safe. But I want to tell you something. Jesus doesn't play it safe. And so the disciples said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, you're up to verse 8 with me now. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. You're going there again? Uh, our Lord, what he loves to do at this point is to enter into parables, tell a story. Nobody did illustrations better than our Savior. In the midst of a teaching comes an illustration. Here it comes. But in verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? I could just see the looks on their faces. Now, where is he going with this one? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if 
anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What is Jesus saying? What Jesus means by this is that by returning to Judea, he is doing the will of God. He's walking in the light. And if you walk in the light, you're not prone to stumble. Not to do God's will is the equivalent of walking in the dark in the night. You're more likely to stumble. Now, this is going to speak to a culture that lacks electricity, where you didn't have flashlights, you didn't have a switch to turn on and off lights. I mean, having walked in Israel, I'm telling you, it can get dark at night. And it can look intrinsically dangerous. But now, Jesus, nonetheless, is giving them a picture. It's better to walk in the light and face danger than to remain safe and in the dark. Avoid the danger, but be outside of the will of God. Yosef Tzahn understood that. Yosef Tzahn had been an extraordinary pastor in Romania during the days of communism. He came to speak here at a missions conference, featured speaker. Tzahn had been constantly harassed, threatened with death, if he continued communicating the gospel, an act which was viewed as opposition to the communist regime until, until the, the iron fist of communism came apart on Christmas of 1989. But in the face of a death threat, Yosef responded to his opponents with these words, your chief weapon is killing. They were threatening to kill him for sharing the gospel. My chief weapon is dying. And the authorities were startled and said, what do you mean? And Yosef, and I, I can remember sitting in the parking lot with him as he was chuckling. He replied, look, if you kill me, all of my words and all of my teachings will be sprinkled with my blood and the crowds will hunger for the words of a man who gave his life for the gospel. If you use your weapon, I'll be forced to use mine. And Jesus says, I choose my weapon. I'm going to raise Lazarus and watch the opposition and how they're going to move things forward to my own death. threatening situations, Jesus steps in. Your Lord does not play it safe, which leads to this fourth and final way, unexpected way in which Christ communicates love. Fourthly, the mature faith that our Lord desires. You pick it up in 11. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. He's using a metaphor. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. They don't get it. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant 
He's taking rest and sleep. So he's got to use a two-by-four, which he did quite often with his disciples. And so in 14, he said, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Duh. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Otherwise, it would be viewed as resuscitation, not resurrection. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there. So that they would be able to look at him on the cross and realize after death comes resurrection. You see how this fits together? so that you may believe. But let's go to him. I want you to take that phrase, so that you may believe, and attach it to the name that comes next. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's also go, that we may, that we may, die with him. Thomas has this thing about death, evidently, with no idea of resurrection attached to it. Until in that upper room, the twin, he appears on the scene, and although the doors were locked, Jesus stood among them, and we're told in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand out your hand. Place it in my side. And do not disbelieve, but believe. Now you've connected the dots to the story of Lazarus and Thomas. But now a greater resurrection than Lazarus's is now referenced. What did Thomas say? My Lord, my God. And when you examine very carefully the death-resurrection connection in the ministry of Jesus, you say, my Lord, my God, as the woman who is doing sign language stops, taken aback, because... She's offering sign language with regard to the love of Jesus Christ. Be overwhelmed. This is real. This is your God. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we thank you now. Some of us feel like we're suspended in midair like the trapeze artists. We're waiting, waiting to be caught. Or maybe we're waiting for, for that loved one in our family to be caught by your gracious hands. We've been trying to do all the catching. Doesn't seem to work. But here in this Bible teaching fellowship of ours, we focus upon the one who catches. the one who said, I am the Father of one. So, Father, we thank you now for who you are. We're thanking you for what you've done. 
And so we explore this seventh sign. And we're pondering the sign language of Jesus. We're awed by his death, awed by his resurrection, awed by his love. And for this, we give you all praise, all of it, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.